thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and I'm delighted to have you join me this week. We're going into part two of the series I began last week, looking at critical race theory, and in particular, uh, statements that were made by some of our national leading political figures that touched on the question of critical race theory and Christianity. Uh, last week, we specifically looked at a statement by George W. Bush that indicated his own thinking about his own faith system, which is a Protestant theology that came out of the Reformation, has been co-opted by critical race theory, where he referred to white Anglo-Saxon Protestantism as being a problem for the Republican Party and Presumably, if he thinks the Republican Party is important to America, it, by extension, is bad for America. Now, for those that might have missed that episode or might uh, be new to the term critical race theory, I will quickly tell you what it is. Um, and I'm quoting here from a couple of professors who uh, were interviewed in connection with a Christian website that I refer to from time to time, and this is what the professor said it was. Fundamentally, critical theory views the world through the singular lens of power. Critical theorists are interested in the power dynamics between different groups as they relate to law, economics, social norms, and even truth claims. So they look to see where is the predominant power group and how do they use their power to maintain power and to oppress other persons for the benefit, obviously, of themselves and their group. And critical race theory is that same concept applied to race, where race is the lens of power through which we're supposed to see the world. In other words, race is the predominant thing in America, and clearly, if you understand critical race theory and the idea of systemic racism, uh, whites, Anglo-Saxon Protestants, Europeans, um, have uh, have abused other people through their power and used their power to abuse other people. And what George Bush was saying is, yeah, that Protestantism is a white thing for whites to maintain power. And he, he conflated how whites have often misapplied Protestant theology and its understanding of God, its understanding of man, and its understanding of our purpose and God's purpose in creation badly. And so he threw Protestantism under the bus as a tool of oppression. So with a little more help from friends like George Bush, we'll have critical race theory throughout our whole culture. But today we want to look at an editorial by Dr. Ben Carson, who was a cabinet member under the Trump administration and Governor Christie Noem. Now, let me tell you about the article. It opened with uh, two small paragraphs with a very patriotic American sort of quote about American values and, and the importance of what America stands for from uh, President Reagan and Trump. 
and then it gets into the meat of what they want to talk about. And here's how the next paragraph reads, next two paragraphs. It's bad enough to lose one's faith. Now, I don't know much about Christy Nome, but Ben Carson is outspoken, known to be a Christian, and I assume he's talking about one's faith in God, presumably one's faith in the God of the Bible. Okay. He said, so it's bad enough, or in the article they say, it's bad enough to lose one's faith, which at least holds forth the possibility of recovering it. In other words, you can backslide and maybe, maybe you get your faith back, okay? Next paragraph. But what if we give up and abandon altogether the teaching of our children, the true and inspiring story of America? Well, they sort of beg the question here. Critical race theory says it's not an inspiring story. It's a story of how white Anglo-Saxon Protestants use their Protestantism and their whiteness to subjugate other races and hold everybody else down. Now, it helps that Ben Carson is, is, is black and he's, he's saying this, but they're begging the question by saying it's an inspiring story. The other side is saying, well, no, it's not an inspiring story at all. It's a terrible story. And now let's move on. They say, what will become of our youngest Americans who are starting off with a blank slate about what our country means and stands for? What exactly are we doing if we're not teaching them about their country's values, history, and heroes? Again, they're sort of begging the question about the value of our values and who our heroes are and whether they should be our heroes. We say they're heroes. The other side says they're not heroes. Well, on what basis do we decide they are or they aren't? Now, here's where it it just shows the confused thinking on their part. The, the next thing they bring up then is critical race theory undermines these values, so that therefore hurts America. And it says critical race theory, and I'm going to quote now, rejects America's most defining principle that as individuals we're all created equal by God. Now, I, I like that statement. I believe that is one of our defining principles. But notice that it's grounded in one's faith and understanding of who God is and who man is in relation to God, which they just said, it's terrible if we lose our faith, but hey, we can hang on to our values, even if we lose our faith in God. Now, my friends, that's just backwards. The most fundamental issue in our culture is that we've forgotten God. But it's not just a denial of God's existence, because we still have a lot of people that say, yeah, I believe in God. It's what we've forgotten about God or what we believe about God that matters the most. And so when Carson and Nome say that we can lose our faith, but let's hold on to our values so we can keep our culture, here's what I would say back to them. Faith comes before culture. And in America, it came before America, and it came before critical theory of any kind. So the theology came first, as I said about Bush. It was the reformational theology of Protestantism in Anglo-Saxon Europe that fueled the First Great Awakening, that fueled the Declaration of Independence, that informed our constitutional structures. So they've got it backwards. You can't have the culture, you can't have the values of America without having a certain faith in God and a belief about, and particular beliefs about God. So they contradict themselves. It's terrible if we lose our faith. Oh, but we need to believe God in, in the image of God. Well, 
Where does that come from? It comes from your faith. I mean, this is just confused thinking as much as, you know, I, I, I love Ben Carson. They got things backwards and it's confused. So, so essentially, what Carson and Nome are offering is a form of Americanism, a form of patriotism, as a solution to that which is condemning Americanism and American values. You have to provide something deeper, something more. You have to provide a foundation for those values. And what I was trying to say last week was that the values that that Nome and, and Carson are talking about are values that arose out of what Bush called the white Anglo-Saxon Protestantism. So you put these 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 two thoughts together and you have no defense to critical race theory in our country coming out of at least two of these three peoples are supposedly evangelicals and Protestants. I mean, my friends, we have a severe problem here. That leading voices in our nation in politics who profess to be Christian are not giving a God-centered answer to the problems of critical race theory. In the one case with Bush, they're throwing a God-centered theology, the reformational theology that I quoted from last week from Herman Bavinck's understanding of God making us in the image uh, of his image and, and calling for multiplicity and billions of people to unfold and reveal the breadth and depth and height and width of the glory of the image of God uh, Bush threw that under the bus. And then Carson and Noam say, well, we can lose our faith in God, but we can hold on to the political values when it's the very political values that are in question. That's no solution. My friends, that's why we offered Restoring the Vision. And if you'd like to know more about Restoring the Vision and developing a God-centered worldview, then I, I, I ask, please reach out to us. Send an email to info at factn.org. I'll repeat that, info at factn.org and say, I would like to know more about how I can access the information that was given out at Restoring the Vision. Now, I want to close this segment today with a thought about what we can learn from critical race theory as Christians. One of the things that I've loved about the writing of Dr. Abraham Kuyper, whom I've mentioned many times, he was a theologian in the Netherlands, founded a political party, became the prime minister. He lived in the latter part of the 1800s and into the early 1900s. And he wrote a number of things in which he he spoke to the problems in their culture, but what he, he did was that he didn't bash them in their entirety, but said, in fact, the reason these problems exist in our culture is because they do touch on a truth or expose a failure of the church to properly apply and administer the truth of God. 
And one of the things I think we have to realize in modern evangelicalism is we have put such an emphasis on the individual. I mean, think about it. Now, I'm going to touch on some toes here and strike some nerves, I suspect. But think about the whole concept of believer's baptism as opposed to covenant baptism. Now, I don't, I don't want to get into that debate uh, at, at, a, at a deep level, but, but it puts the emphasis on the individual, what the individual does, what the individual believes. And it's not so much seen as something that's given by God as a statement by God about him and his faithfulness to his covenant and to the promises that are first exposed in Genesis 3.15. It's a statement about us. In that sense, it's a very subject-oriented perspective on baptism and very individualistic, okay? And, and the sense, then, of a covenant community, of a group, is somewhat lost and shattered. If we're not careful, the church becomes a group of individuals, an aggregation of individuals who have each chosen to believe, and they're united by a core set of beliefs, not their union to Christ, the mystical union to Christ. And in that sense, they become a body no different from the Kiwanis Club or the Rotary Club or Black Lives Matters because we all adhere to a set of values, but we're not really organically related to anybody. We're just a group, an aggregation of people. But the church is to be more than an aggregation of people. Because we're told in Ephesians 1.10 that the, the final purpose of God is to unite all things in heaven and earth together. Now, all things in heaven and earth means all things on earth, right, would be united. And that would be what's left after the final judgment. The Christians, where Paul says there is, there are Jews, and there are Greeks, and there are slave, and there are free, but there is a unity among them, where they are not respecters of persons because they believe that who they are and their station in life has itself been established and fixed by God for God's own good purposes and glory. Now that is a earth-shattering kind of statement to say. You mean God wants some people to be in poverty? Yes, he does for his own purposes. Because you know what? Somebody perhaps in poverty needs to know a person who knows God that's in poverty and who is able to live above their poverty and find a peace with God that transcends understanding. Maybe he needs some rich person to do the same thing. Maybe he needs somebody in science. Maybe he needs somebody in art and in education to do that same thing because it's all of God's reality. And he says, I will place you where I will place you. I mean, think about it now, my friends. What did he say in Romans chapter 9? He said, I even raised up Pharaoh for my own purposes to show my glory in his destruction, to show my righteousness 
in his destruction. Proverbs 16.4 says, Even the wicked are made for the day of evil. Now, I'm going to read something to you that I think is personally beautiful. That if the Carsons and the gnomes and the bushes of the world would say and our pulpits would declare, I think would begin to change the church, which would then change our culture. And in the face of it, critical race theory would go away. It could not rage against it anymore. So let me quote here from Abraham Kuyper's Stone Lectures called the Lectures on Calvinism that were given in 1898 at Princeton Seminary. In his first lecture, Kuyper says that Reformational Protestant theology developed a fundamental interpretation of its own, different from paganism, Catholicism, and uh, what he calls modernism and Islam, a fundamental interpretation of its own, touching on the relation of man to man. Okay, and here's how he describes it. He says, because we see everything from and through and to God, that there's nothing outside the sovereignty of God. And you see, the sovereignty of God was the dominating principle of reformational Protestantism as opposed to soteriology and salvation. Soteriology and salvation was understood in relation to God himself and God's authority, sovereignty over all of creation. And he says this, that it established a way of life that ennobled social life, this, this theology. He said, quote, it places our entire human life immediately before God. And when that happens, he says, it, quote, follows that all men or women, rich or poor, weak or strong, dull or talented, as creatures of God and as lost sinners have no claim whatsoever to lord over one another, and that we stand as equals before God and consequently equal as man to man. Hence, we cannot recognize any distinction among men, save, and here's the key part, save such has been imposed by God himself in that he gave one authority over the other or enriched one with more talents than the other. And here's the key. In order that the man of more talents should serve the man with less and in him serve his God. Isn't that a beautiful statement? He did not give you authority. He did not give you riches. He did not give you position. He did not create this hegemony, as we talked about last week, for you to use it for your own self, but that you should serve those with less in order in serving that person to serve God. Hence, Reformational Protestantism condemns not merely all open slavery and systems of caste. See, the system of caste is a hegemony. But also all covert slavery of women and of the poor. 
It is opposed to all hierarchy among men. It tolerates no aristocracy, save such as able, either in person or in family. Now, here again. Okay, okay, we're going to, you're getting ready to say here, David, that aristocracy is okay. Here's what he says. By the grace of God. You see, it's living before God. It's recognizing that I and myself am just a creature made of dust whose breath of life is not in his nostrils. Isaiah 1.17, I believe it is, who is fallen. And it's only by the grace of God that I even live. It's in him I move and have my being. And none of this is for me because it's from him and it's through him, but it is to be directed to him. So if I have something, it is by the grace of God. It is a meekness of living before the face of God to say, this is not my own, but is, is that which has been given to me by God, by His mercy and by His grace to steward in the service of God directed towards others. So let me finish it up. I'm going to go back and repeat it so that I don't interrupt my own flow. He said, it tolerates no aristocracy, save such as able, either in person or in family, by the grace of God to exhibit superiority of character or talent, to show that it does not claim this superiority for self-aggregandizement or ambitious pride, but for the sake of spending it in the service of God. It was not the man of lower estate who reduced his superior to his level in order to usurp the higher place, but it was all men kneeling in concert at the holy feet of the one of Israel. Now there is a beautiful picture to me between that and what Bobink said, and I quoted last week, of what the body of Christ should look like. And you know what? If the church looked like that, then people would say there is a God. And you know what? That's exactly what John said, that Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room. By this, how you love and you serve one another, will people know that I'm sent by God. In church, it's time for us to say that. It's time for us to say we fail to live up to what we say we believe and where our beliefs have not accorded with what I've said to correct and fix them. And I believe if we'll do that, not join in by claiming Protestantism is just a bunch of old white elitist Anglo-Saxons or saying, well, let's just adhere to American values when those values are are themselves what is in question. If Christians will do I uh, do what I'm talking about, if we will live up to what was just said and read, then I think we can find a solution to critical race theory. Now I want to say one last thing and then I'll quit. I often wonder if our concern with critical race theory is not because it is an insult to God by saying the lens of power through which we look is, is race or something else and not God is because we're concerned about losing our hegemony. We're concerned about not being 
as Christians, the dominant influence in culture, and losing the things that come with being the dominant influence in culture. Is it just possible that our concern with critical race theory doesn't come from a God-centered perspective, but from a me-centered perspective? Oh, God, help us. Thank you for joining me today for God, Law, and Liberty, and I'll look forward to being with you, I hope, next week. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.